my name's Connor O'Hagan and I'm a bit of a bird watcher. With me is Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Island. Um, we're recording on what I guess you could call a classic early spring day. Uh, blustery, temperature about 8 to 10 degrees thereabouts, threatening rain, but um, a definite feeling of uh, growth in the air. Uh, this is where nature and particularly birds really get down to business, isn't it? And winter's about surviving, spring is about thriving, Niall. Yes, exactly. This is when change is really in the air. The days are lengthening. Uh, the temperatures are going up a little bit, although it's, it is still very nippy at the moment. We could still have some cold spells. But it's when the birds are starting to switch into the beginnings of breeding mode. And it's also when uh, migration starts to become an imperative for them as well. So they may not be migrating at the moment, but they are certainly starting to think about it. And all of these are controlled by hormones that are driven by changes in day length. So that's what's happening. The birds are starting to uh, become more territorial they're starting to sing more the migratory birds are becoming more restless the ones that are going to leave us now for for further north to go back to their breeding grounds in the arctic uh, and of course before long we're going to have some of our migrants coming in from africa as well so it's really all changed and i really look forward to this season as a bird watcher yeah we talked last time about some of the um some of the birds that will be um, will be gaining uh, during the spring and the summer but uh, what about the birds we'll be losing who who leaves ireland at this time of year well, a, a huge number of birds do. We, we, we probably have more birds in Ireland in the winter than we do in the summer. We always think of birds uh, you know, migrating south for, for the winter to somewhere warm. Well, for a huge number of birds, Ireland is that warm southern location. So lots of birds like ducks, swans, geese and waders particularly, they're going to be returning to their breeding grounds in places like uh, Arctic Canada, Greenland, Iceland, Scandinavia, northern Russia, uh, those kind of areas. So um, we're talking a lot of water birds particularly. And that makes sense, I suppose, because although we think of Ireland as being quite a cold place, in the winter, in European terms, we're actually quite warm. It's rare that our wetlands freeze over completely, which means that these birds that need water for their for their whole for their feeding and for their life cycles, they can be relatively assured that Ireland is going to be a secure, safe place for them to spend the winter because they'll have access to unfrozen water virtually all of the time. You can't say that necessarily about places like Germany or Denmark or, or France, especially northern France. They could well freeze over but Ireland it's relatively ice free so that's why they come here but then of course they'll return to the Arctic because the further north they go in the summer uh, the more daylight they'll have per 24 hour period which means more feeding opportunities and also the further north they go the fewer predators there are there as well because birds can fly away but mammalian planet uh, predators such as Arctic foxes can't so what happens is that there's a lower density there because surviving winter there is so tough for them whereas the birds can just leave and then return I think it's one of the things that we don't maybe appreciate uh, as much as we could that how just how rich a feeding ground the arctic uh, can be at the right time of year Yes, well, obviously the image people have of the Arctic is of a very cold, desolate place covered in snow. But in fact, much of the Arctic in the summer is actually quite warm, uh, has lots of daylight. Uh, in many cases, it would have constant daylight for several months on end. And that, of course, means that there's lots of insects around. Lots of flies would reproduce at that stage. It's like the whole year's life cycle is compressed into just a couple of months. Take advantage of that abundant sunshine. That's when all the flowers will bloom, uh, when, 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 when the mammals will mate as well. We have lots of the lemming would emerge that then support the owls and the other birds of prey but it's all compressed into a very short period of time and then it all just goes to sleep for most of the year um, most of the, the, the mammals will hibernate uh, most of the birds will migrate away most of the insects are dormant or, or the adults are gone and they're just surviving as maybe as eggs over the, over the course of the, the winter and then it all comes to life again in the spring so, um, so that's really what's happening Thank you.
Would you like to win a top-of-the-range Doro smartphone? Doro phones are designed especially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text, plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. To enter the competition to win that Doro phone, visit seniortimes.ie and just answer one simple question. Or visit and like us on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones. Make friends with innovation. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. When you look at, in fact, when you look at the um, the options that birds have during the Northern Hemisphere winter, um, how few places there are, even in Europe, where, well, certainly in Northern Europe, where you can rely on unfrozen water, it's maybe even surprising that we don't get more bird bird migrants into Ireland during the winter. It's really something of a haven, isn't it? It really is. And I think um, when you look at our position on the map as well, we're ideally poised to take lots of birds from other countries. So if you're a bird that's crossing the Atlantic or you're coming from Iceland, we'll be very often the first port of call. We're the first landfall when they're coming in, exhausted off the Atlantic. So it makes sense that they would stop there. Um, some of them may continue on after a few days and move on to other countries in Europe or even down to Africa. Uh, but we're a very important rest stop for these passage migrants, as we call them. Uh, but then, of course, many of them come here and they find that it's very much their liking. There's no need to go anywhere else. So a good example of that would be uh, the Brent geese that are such a familiar site, particularly on the east coast of Ireland, around, around Dublin City especially. They come to us from High Arctic Canada. They're actually the, the furthest, uh, the, the bird that breeds furthest north in the whole world. Uh, and they migrate to us from places like Baffin Island down to Ireland. And they don't need to go any further. They don't even need to go across to Britain because everything they need is here in Ireland. And so it works out for them. They don't have to go to the extra stress of even flying a few extra kilometres. They don't need to. Yeah, geese are classic long distance travellers, I guess. Uh, and certainly when you... Uh, if you look at a goose, it's built for it. But some of the birds who, that travel huge distances to and from Ireland are really surprising in terms of their, their physiques, how they actually manage to pull it off. It never ceases to amaze me. If you look at a, a bird like a willow warbler, for example. So willow warbler is a real bird watcher's bird. It's extremely common in Ireland. We have over a million pairs of them in the summer. And yet it's a bird that the, the general public don't know at all. Uh, but it's, it's a small little little yellowishy green bird. Um, it, it, only weighs, it only weighs a few grams. It's tiny. It's about, uh, it's, it's about, about the size of a blue tit. That's roughly, roughly the size of it. But they're trans-Saharan migrants. So they uh, breed here in Ireland and all across Europe and parts of Asia in the summer. Then they migrate down all the way down to sub-Saharan Africa and then come back and we're talking a minute little creature that can do this. There's another bird that's been turning up um, in increasing numbers in Ireland in recent years, a bird called the yellow-browed warbler, which is a relative of the willow warbler. It's a bird from Eastern Asia. Uh, it's barely bigger than a gold crest. The, the bird itself weighs probably only about six or seven grams and yet this tiny little sprite can travel thousands of kilometres across all of Asia, across the Ural Mountains and end up in Ireland. I find it just mind-blowing uh, that such... Yeah, such delicate, but what you think were such delicate creatures are actually so, so tough. It's amazing. And some of the terrains that they're crossing, of course, are really inhospitable. Excuse me, inhospitable. 
Oh, they are. I mean, I think if, if you think of any bird that's coming up from sub-Saharan Africa, of course, the big barrier they have to cross is the Sahara Desert. Uh, and of course, with climate change and also with um, certain agricultural practices in parts of Africa, uh, that desert is getting wider and wider each year. So it's an extra barrier that those birds have to cross. And they're already on a knife edge. They're already at the very limits of what they can physically endure. So even a, an extra kilometre of desert uh, can be, be the difference between life and death. And the, I, 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 the sad fact is that most birds do not survive that migration. Most perish. And do we know how long it would take a bird to cross the Sahara from south to north? It depends on the species. So some fly faster than others. So for birds like the swift, for example, one of our classic summer visitors... Which cannot land, essentially. Exactly, yes. They're, they're, they're designed to live on the wing the whole time. They're supremely adapted for it. They can fly very fast, as the name swift would, would, would suggest. And they can get across the Sahara pretty quickly. Uh, they could get across it probably within a couple of days. For smaller birds like swallows, it's more of, a, more of an endurance. Uh, they have to flap across. Most of the time, there's nowhere they can even rest or perch. So it is tough for them. As far as we can tell, they try to get as far across as fast as they can. They wait for the weather conditions to be the best they can be and then they cross it within a, within a few days then of course um, the, a lot of the birds that are migrating to Ireland what they do is they, they try to go across the shortest crossing point of the Mediterranean because small birds do not like to fly over open water if they can avoid it uh, because they're very vulnerable to predators there's nowhere to rest uh, and for large birds too soaring birds like birds of prey uh, they don't have any thermals these columns of warm air that rise above land but not over water so obviously the crossing point is through Morocco into southern Iberia through to Tarifa and Gibraltar and that kind of area so the sea crossing is very, very short. But to get there, of course, they have to cross the Atlas Mountains. Uh, and they're very inhospitable too. Um, so they've gone from the desert where it's baking baking sun and, and, and no food and, and very difficult to high altitude mountains covered in snow and ice and heavy winds. And that's very tough for them. Then, of course, they get into Iberia. They have to go further north and through the Pyrenees. Uh, and I had an amazing experience um, a few years ago. I had the, had the great pleasure of being um, doing some bird watching in the Pyrenees. It was on literally the border between Spain and France in the high Pyrenean Pass. And there were swallows migrating at the time. And the swallows were migrating over the road, that's high altitude road in the mountains. They were literally about an inch over the surface of the road migrating over the pass. So they were flying no higher than absolutely necessary to clear that mountain. And it just showed me just how important it was for them to save every, every ounce of energy they had. Yeah, because altitude, we, we think of birds as creatures of the sky but altitude is is almost as much of a challenge for birds as it is for us I mean in the sense that okay they can take to the air but they certainly don't want to fly any higher than they have to do to do what they're trying to do and and, and so so certainly very few birds for instance would cross the Himalayas because they are so high but so even even crossing the likes of the Alps is a, is a challenge to small birds I mean most most birds that we see in our gardens correct me if I'm wrong don't really ever rise more than about 20 feet off the ground. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's no reason for them to do that. I mean, the higher they go, the riskier it is because it's harder for them to avoid a predator like a falcon or a hawk. They'll be looking out for them. They're they're, they're an easy target. But also, um, there's very little food up there. And obviously, the higher you go, the colder it gets and the less oxygen there is. Now, birds are much more efficient at processing oxygen than we humans are, so they can endure uh, lower oxygen conditions than than we can. Uh, But even so, when you're going up, you know, thousands of meters in the sky, uh, that makes a big difference and there's nothing to breathe. Uh, it's very cold. It gets very, very, very windy up there. Um, there's a suggestion that perhaps some long-distance migrants uh, that are very adapted to life on the wing may use the jet stream to travel, um, but that's thought to be very, very rare that that happens. Uh, one bird that might do that is a bird called the house martin. Uh, the house martin's a bird that I find amazing. It's one of our common summer migrants. Uh, they build those mud nests under the eaves of people's houses and on the side of buildings. We don't really know what they did before humans came on the scene because now they pretty much exclusively nest on human structures. They're so familiar around our houses 
houses around our towns and cities during the during the, the summer months and then they leave us they head south in the autumn and where they go we have no idea the wintering grounds of the house martin have never been discovered um, so i think it's amazing this bird that's so familiar around our houses there's a whole part of its life that we know nothing about but it's thought perhaps it goes up to high altitude uh, and that's why we don't notice it on migration or even notice where it spends the winter well you've alluded to you've touched upon a topic that we'll get on to in a while uh, the importance of um, the built environment the human built mm-hmm. environment to uh, to birds some birds at any rate but I noticed uh, earlier this week Birdwatch Ireland put out a I suppose you'd call it a call out to uh, to the public to report sightings of parakeets now there are no native parakeets in Ireland needless to say there are very few uh, in fact parakeets which would even be native to uh, Europe as far as I know uh, not, not in fact, uh, no, no native parakeets to Europe. No Europe, native no. parakeets in Europe. Well, there you go. But certainly, anyone who's visited, um, particularly the south of England or most of continental Europe, in fact, uh, in, in recent years, say in the last twenty years or so, if you had your eyes and ears about you, you'd have noticed uh, flashes of very, very bright green and some very unfamiliar squawking noises, which are characteristic of parakeets. Now, parakeets, until uh, until the last couple of decades, were creatures of cages um, in Europe. Um, I myself, I have to say, uh, maybe I should feel guilty about this, but as a young teenager, I kept a, a pet parakeet. and uh, And so... The first time I ever saw a parakeet in London, which was in fact in Dulwich in in South London in a very leafy park, a flash of green caught uh, my peripheral vision and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was an actual bright green parakeet uh, just zooming around a park. Um, but now, going back to London, I mean, they're as common as muck, basically. They're, they're all over the place. And because they are so prominent, they're very, very visible, very, very audible um, and very active. I mean, they're not creatures that hike, skulk around in uh, down in the hedges. These are creatures which fly from tree to tree. They're very, very visible and to some extent, I guess, very resented uh, by some because there's a feeling that they, like a lot of invasive species, they displace uh, native um native species but now tell us um uh, how how many parakeets are there in ireland well so far as far as we can tell not very many but that's the reason we put this call out we want to be sure um certainly we've seen uh, a small flock of them seems to have been flying around uh, parts of west dublin particularly uh, over the last 18 months to two years uh, the species concerned is called the ring-necked parakeet also known as the rose ringed parakeet and it is indeed the same species that has colonized so much of london and southern england it's also become quite widespread and common in other european cities like uh, amsterdam brussels uh, barcelona madrid you'll see them there as well um, south of France they're taking hold too uh, so this is a bird that um, we're not quite sure how it got here to Ireland um, one suggestion is perhaps the, the British population has expanded to the extent that they've flown across the Irish Sea yeah they're not particularly strong flyers in terms of distance are they no that's true and I think they'd be reluctant to cross water I don't think that's what's happening although we don't want to prejudge it but I don't think that's what's happening and I would have expected to see populations maybe becoming established in places like Cardiff and Swansea in Wales before they would pass across to Ireland maybe um, so I, I think it's more likely that they're the results of escaped pets um, from here from here in Ireland and um, that seem to be taking well to, to wild existence. We, we've, uh, they seem to have actually bred successfully in Dublin last year, which was uh, was uh, very unexpected. Um, the reason why this species is of particular interest and possible concern as well is that it's well adapted to live within our kind of environment and within our, 
within our climate. Parrots must escape all the time. So parrots and parakeets and budgies and everything must escape from cages a lot in Ireland, but they don't tend to live very long. They don't, they can't find food. They can't cope with the cold weather because most parrots come from tropical regions. What's different about the ring-necked parakeet is that it has a very wide distribution across both Africa and uh, Asia, particularly the Indian subcontinent, and particularly the populations in, uh, in India and in Pakistan. They're often found at relatively high altitude and quite far north within those countries, so they're able to cope with cold winters. And they've evolved an extra layer of, of feathers, um, extra thick feathers, that keep them protected against cold weather. So they can actually handle what the Irish winter would throw at them quite well. Uh, you know, if they could survive a winter in, in London or in Brussels or Amsterdam, they could certainly survive a winter in Dublin. Now, uh, it's obviously, they're beautiful birds, and it's very interesting to see them, but they could pose potential problems. Uh, they are cavity nesting species, so what they do is they sort of gang up on other birds and kick them out of the nesting cavities, and this could spell disaster for threatened birds like uh, the stock dove, for example, that very much relies on, on that. It could be problems for other species too. You know, we have great spot of woodpeckers colonising Ireland at the moment. Perhaps there'll be an impact there from the parakeets, or perhaps the spread of great spot of, spot of woodpeckers making nest cavities, because they obviously drill the nest in the tree, could allow Allow the woodpeckers and allow the parakeets an opportunity to expand. So it's something we're concerned with. Something that occurs to me is that um, primarily, as far as I know, in in England, these birds have colonised towns and cities. Now there wouldn't be that many stock doves or woodpeckers in the towns and cities of Ireland. No, that, that's true, but they will expand into the surrounding countryside and they then also will uh, sort of, because they flock together, they do sort of crowd other birds out from feeding opportunities and feeding areas. And in quite a lot of the range where they have been um, either inadvertently or deliberately introduced in other countries, they become quite an agricultural pre- pest. So they'll descend on fruit or fruit orders, for example, and eat loads of apples or cherries or plums or whatever is there. Um, they, they have a voracious appetite. And they'll also go for other agricultural crops as well. So um, I think it's what's happening is we're, we're a call out in in, uh, in conjunction with the National Biodiversity Data Centre uh, to try and just to see what population there is here at the moment and see what uh, what could be done. Certainly, there's, just to reassure people, there's no uh, suggestion whatsoever that these birds would be harmed. Uh, it may be that uh, that capturing them and rehoming them uh, would be would be in the best interest. And if, in fact, that's in the best interest of the birds as well, because parakeets, like most parrots, have a very long lifespan in captivity. Um, these these the, 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 these birds themselves, the, the the apart from the ones that was obviously bred or hatched last year they would have been reared in captivity themselves they're used to being fed by humans that association with humans is probably why they are so much around cities and so it's actually the kindest thing for them is for them to go back into captivity if possible nobody certainly nobody will harm them i can assure people of that yeah they're not particularly fast breeding species i don't think are they so they, they won't spread um it, it, it should it, it will take time for them to become a problem i think Yes, absolutely. So I think we have an opportunity now to, 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 to keep an eye on that and make sure that it doesn't get out of hand in a way that I bet uh, the authorities in London wish that they could have and in other European cities too, because now at that stage, they've got so such a massive population that there's no longer a way to control them. They're also a very early breeder too. They actually breed usually in February. Uh, so um, so it's much earlier than most other birds. So we're, we're hoping that uh, this maybe prompt people to actually think, oh yeah, these, these birds are nesting around my house or I've seen them coming to my bird feeders. So I um, want to keep track of them. To describe what they're like, I mean, you know, obviously most people know what a parrot or a parakeet looks like in general sense. Uh, they're bright green, as you said. They have a, quite a long pointed tail and uh, a lovely sort of a rosy red beak. Uh, and the adults, particularly the males, have sort of a black sort of collar that sort of goes around their neck and sweeps up to the back of their head. A very, very beautiful bird. Uh, very noisy, as you said. They have all these raucous squawks and squeals that they make. So they're very distinctive if they're in the, if they're in the area. You'll know it. You'll hear them. Funnily enough, that's the thing that struck me 
that's what struck me most about uh, seeing them in in London. Um, it, it's uh, they're intrusive visually because you're not used to a bird of that colour. We just don't happen to have any native birds with that, or certainly of that size, with that sharp <laughs> sharper colour. But it's the sound that they make which is so alien. You, you, the moment you hear one, you know you're hearing something that doesn't belong. To hear one in a semi-wild um, environment is, is very strange indeed. Mm-hmm. It is, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's something, it, it, it does sound very alien, um, you know, in, in the best sense. It does say it's an unusual exotic sound. It's, you know, and, and I can imagine a whole flock of them could sound quite unpleasant early in the morning. But it's one or two is not so bad. Uh, but uh, certainly something that people will notice. Um, so people will usually hear them before they see them, even though they are bright green and very conspicuous. Yeah, and they are flocking birds. Uh, that's another thing. They they do actually congregate. So they're not uh, they're not a solitary species by any stretch. They uh, they are sociable. That's right. Yes, and and uh, that's one of the reasons why it seems that parrots are so intelligent. Intelligence seems to evolve in animals mainly that are highly social, such as primates like ourselves, and um, also in animals like wolves, in dolphins, in crows, in parrots. I mean, these and you know and uh, these are the most considered to be the most intelligent animals in the world, along with elephants. They deserve a mention as well. These are all animals that live in social groups for all of their lives. And it seems that it's very important to them to be able to read each other's emotions and feelings and to understand where problems might lie and how they can cooperate. Um, and that's the way that intelligence seems to have evolved. That's where it probably came from for us humans too. Yeah, and it also engenders, I think, one of the one of the um, aspects of parrot behaviour that we find endearing, which is uh, what we anthropomorphise as personality. In that the, mm-hmm. A lot of the birds which flock... Uh, like say for instance starlings uh, be, be another example have what we perceive as character that which endears them to us now and I know not everybody likes starlings personally they're one of my favourite birds because I perceive them as having this kind of cheekiness about them yeah absolutely Parrots have that too, and then parakeets. I think this is one way in which, a way in which they they kind of impose themselves upon us by having what we perceive as a personality. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, a lot of these flocking intelligent species, they're always on the lookout for opportunities. They're very inquisitive and very intelligent. They're always looking for for ways to find new ways to exploit food or whatever. Uh, and in that way, that curiosity, in some ways, it's it's almost very childlike. It reminds us of children in the way that maybe a toddler is exploring the world, and it's it is that kind of charm that endears them to us absolutely and i think that especially with with birds like parrots when people do keep them in captivity obviously famously they can be trained to speak and uh, they become part of the family they they they, they sort of uh, adopt the family as their flock so they, they, there's no other parrots around so humans are the next best thing so they almost consider themselves a human uh, so we do find that very endearing without question now i mean anthropomorphism which i've just mentioned there um is a subject which uh, I think has a lot to do with how we perceive birds and how we relate to them, and it's probably a subject for another day. But uh, it, it's a very, it's a very interesting aspect, I think, of, of of the relationship between people and birds, and how we interpret them and their behaviour, and how we relate to them. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, for good and for bad, I think that sometimes we can look at some of what we would perceive as the more negative traits in humans. When birds do those things, we think that they're evil or they're bad. So whether that's, you know, a magpie robbing a bird's nest or a cuckoo laying its eggs in the nest of another bird and the chick throwing the, the, the eggs out, 
that the birds don't intend to be evil or bad. We can't judge them by human moral standards. Um, and I think we can have double standards there as well, because I think if another species was looking at human behaviour, they wouldn't necessarily think that we were the nicest of species either. I think, uh, for instance, herring gulls, which have this uh, a very beady, cold-looking eye, which is often interpreted as being uh, slightly, well, in the extreme, I suppose, possibly an, an evil look about them. Whereas a bird with a similarly beady eye, like a jackdaw, which is just subtly different, is very ende- has a very endearing beady eye. I think one of the most fascinating for me is that I, I often do talks about, about garden birds, and I show two slides, one after the other. And what, the first one I show is the wood pigeon, um, a classic bird, but it, uh, you know, very common in Ireland, uh, abundant. Um, not to be confused with the feral pigeon. The wood pigeon is a bigger bird, and it has a very pale eye with a strange uh, sort of shaped uh, iris. Uh, in fact, it's a little, there's a little black smudge below it, so it gives the effect of looking like it has a weird oval or keyhole shaped iris but the eye is very pale the head looks very small the body looks dumpy so we, we feel suspicious of this bird or we think it looks kind of stupid or awkward then the next slide I show is the collared dove which has pretty much the same sort of shaped head small head on a, on a large body it has a very dark eye and all of a sudden it looks much cuter people go awe when they see the picture and it's just it's just literally the, the, the colour of the eye that's all myself I perceive uh, wood pigeons as I suppose nice but dim yes i yes. perceive uh, uh collared doves as um probably no more no less dim but just cuter yeah They're- yes cuter yeah <laughs> Yes, if you look at the gulls as well, just very quickly, there's an example. So the herring gull, the one that uh, that people often complain about robbing bins and taking chips and so on, well, stealing um, everything from small dogs to babies. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. There's, there is a lot of hyperbole around around that. But of course, people say they look very fierce. They look very aggressive. They have these pale, staring eyes and this, you know, this big, strong-looking beak. And you know, they, they are they can be formidable. But we judge them because of that pale eye it makes them look fierce. Another member of the gull family, the kittiwake, has basically the same colour. It's a smaller bird, but the, the eye is dark and it looks so much cuter and more endearing and people absolutely love them when they see the pictures um, so it, it's again a lot of it is us projecting our, our own prejudices onto birds it's not their yeah or for instance turns which I think um, everybody loves yes, a yes. turn <laughs> absolutely yes it's a little less uh, physically uh, aggressive than a gull can be and just something about the way it behaves and the and especially with the arctic turn the nice little black cap uh, which yes, uh, yes. which is just so endearing yeah and a tail like a swallow what more could you ask from a bird yeah they're they're among my favorites i love them i love uh, terns and for birdwatch ireland our turn conservation work is one of our, our biggest things uh, especially the roseate turn uh, the arctic turn the common turn as you mentioned little turn and sandwich turn they're the five that we have in ireland um so uh, yeah they'll be coming in the summer so maybe we can chat about them in a future podcast i'd look we will do now back to something i said we'd get on to which is is uh, another Birdwatch Island document um, about birds and the human built environment. It is. It's a new publication that we brought out called Wildlife in Buildings um, and it's all about the importance as you said of the built environment for wildlife. It, it celebrates that natural heritage. We can think sometimes of uh, you know nature only existing in wilderness spaces and that humans and nature can't coexist. Um, so um, we, we can, we've got together with uh, Kerry County Council, Donegal County Council and some funding from the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage. Uh, it's through the National Biodiversity Action Plan Fund um, and we've produced this publication showing um, all about the importance of built spaces, urban areas, suburban areas for birds. Um, so to give, to give a real world example, uh, if it wasn't for uh, ruined churches and buildings and, and barns and castles, we wouldn't have much of a barn owl population in Ireland. Uh, they're words that rely very heavily uh, on, on buildings. Uh, the house martins that we were discussing earlier, they pretty much exclusively rely on human buildings for nesting on. Uh, the same goes for swift. 
nests. They only nest within buildings. And there are many other birds which, while they might not necessarily spend all of their time around buildings, they do rely on our gardens, on our urban spaces, on our parks. Um, you know, we humans have to recognise that we have dra- dramatically altered the landscape in many, many ways. Um, some birds have been pushed out by that and some other wildlife as well, but some others have, have learned to adapt to that and to embrace it indeed and it's become a real lifeline for them. And it's not just birds. We're looking at things like bats as well. Urban foxes would be another one. Um, they rely on buildings very much and it's, so the, the idea of this publication is to open people's eyes to that but also to show how all of us can take even very simple steps to safeguard that wildlife and make our urban areas and our built environment even more welcoming for them. Would you like to win a top-of-the-range Doro smartphone? Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text, plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. To enter the competition to win that Doro phone, visit seniortimes.ie and just answer one simple question or visit and like us on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones. Make friends with innovation. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Yeah, the very obvious question that arises from that, Niall, is, um, well, what did uh, barn owls do before we came? I mean, we're used to the idea, I think, at any rate, that um, that uh, human civilization has uh, sprung up over what is, it, in ev- evolutionary terms, a very brief time. So what did barn owls, assuming that they've been around longer than human civilization has, what did they do before barns? Yes, so uh, we we know a bit about this because the barn owl is a very widespread species. It's found uh, all around the all around the planet, apart from in Antarctica. So you find you find barn owls and their close relatives everywhere. So we do know that in some regions of the world, barn owls do live in caves still. They so that that's what we presume would have happened in Europe uh, before humans came on the scene. Uh, there may still be a couple of areas where they do that, uh, but what they found was that uh, human structures were more reliable, tended to be warmer, more sheltered from the elements, and provided good good feeding opportunities. And I think that, um, you know, it's interesting because the barn owl is a species that's in decline in Ireland, although we're doing a lot of conservation work to arrest that decline. And it's going well, particularly in, in, in Munster and in, in, in Galway, too. That's going going well. Uh, but um, still a lot of work to be done. But that species is declining. But I think it stands to reason that um, that species would have benefited massively from the earliest days of, of the human spread across Europe and particularly the spread of agriculture. Because if you look back to what Ireland would have been um, after the Ice Age ended, pretty quickly Ireland became covered in... In, in broadleaf forest, uh, except for the bogland areas. Now, none of those habitats are what a barn owl wants. Um, so I, I would imagine barn owls in Ireland at that stage, there would have been a few probably, they would have been quite thinly distributed. They would have been thin on the ground in just sort of areas where you would have some natural meadows, maybe that were grazed by deer, and they would keep those down so they could hunt over those open spaces and find the rodents that they, they feed on because they eat, they eat mice um, and, and shrews as well. Uh, as humans came on the scene, cut down most of those trees, the vast majority of them, converted them to agricultural fields, put up farm buildings, all of a sudden, 
there's an opportunity for the barn owl population to really expand and explode. And of course, there wouldn't have been enough natural nest sites anyway to support that because Ireland isn't a country that's packed with caves or these natural crevices. We have a few, but not necessarily near to the feeding areas. But early human buildings provided this. And of course, the early farmers and the early settlers in these areas, they would have seen that, well, this bird, it's great to have it around because it's eating the rats and mice. It's not doing me any harm, but it's controlling the pests for me. So they would encourage them. They wouldn't have persecuted them in the way perhaps that some other birds of prey might have been persecuted. So I think that this bird would have benefited massively from from uh, human expansion and now of course with changes in agriculture and the intensification of that and modern buildings having fewer nesting opportunities for these birds we're seeing a decline again um, but it could have been that the actual peak in barn owls was an artificial thing that was created by humans I think that for other birds too birds like swifts and swallows must have benefited from human activity as well because taking a swallow as for an example they like to nest around human buildings uh, they also like to hunt over open meadows and areas where they can find lots of food there wouldn't have been so many feeding and nesting opportunities for them in Ireland when it was all bogland and woodland there would have been some but not nearly as, as productive as it would be today uh, for the swift as well they, they nest in human buildings exclusively now in Ireland so before that where would they have gone we don't really know well swifts are a, a preoccupation of mine in that um, I, I don't know there's something about swifts which absolutely I find intoxicating in the summer on a, on a hot summer evening um, the sound of swifts in yes, groups yes. or you know the, the screeching noises and just the watching them get higher and higher in the air it's 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 one of the really is one of the joys of summer but it seems to me that in recent years there's just far fewer of them around is that just me or is has there been a sudden decline in swift populations there has. There's been a, a very rapid decline, at least in evolutionary terms or geological terms, since the 1980s. We've seen a real uh, nosedive of the swift population. It's a species that's still widespread in Ireland, uh, but the numbers are nothing like they used to be. And we've done a lot of work on swifts. Uh, and my colleague uh, Ricky Whelan, through our Urban Birds uh, project, has done a lot of work particularly. And what we're finding is that there's several things hitting them at once. One is that modern buildings, especially new builds, they don't have the nooks and crannies and the gaps in the, in the roof and all of that, that that, uh, these birds need to nest in and they like to nest colonially they want to be in groups so the more swifts there are together the happier they are the more likely they are to all survive and, and live there so that's one of the things that's happening now there's easy enough ways to counter that um, and this is the case in in, in, uh, in several other European countries particularly in Germany a lot of work has been done on this that in many in many regions new buildings over a certain height or of a certain type have to have swift nest boxes or swift nesting bricks built into them um, it's a very simple way to do it it's no, it's, 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 it's no harm to the building it does no harm to have these birds around they're very clean they help to control pest insects around a city and so it's great to have them there so we've been doing some of that work here in ireland a lot with uh, local authorities and with tidy towns groups to have swift nest box schemes uh, in buildings and i know a lot of other groups around ireland have been doing this too um, especially the, the swift group run by linda huxley uh, as well who's been doing great work on this and so we all coordinate these this work with the bird and branches and and it's uh, it's been it's been really really good um, so more and more people are coming on board with this to provide more nest sites for these birds and they take very well to them and um, they're they're desperate for somewhere to nest so if we provide that that's putting back one piece of that jigsaw however there's other things hitting the swifts as well because swifts uh, feed exclusively on the wing and they really only eat small flying insects so we're talking flies beetles things like that and the number of those in Ireland and across Europe has dramatically declined as well and there's no coincidence I think that the two are linked Uh, I remember as a child um, uh, I'm in my mid 40s now I remember as a child um, when I was uh, I was living in South County Dublin Uh, every summer my parents used to bundle me and my sisters into the car and we'd head down to a farmhouse we used to stay in down in 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 wexford down near gory 
and it was a journey back at the time there was, there was no motorway at the time but there was you know it would take a journey of maybe a couple of hours as a, as a kid maybe it's, you don't have the perspective on it but a couple of hours maybe and I was always interested in birds so the first thing I'd want to do when I arrived would go out and want to run around the fields looking for new birds but no I always had a job to do first my dad would go and get a bucket of water and a sponge and would ask me to clean all the insects that were plastered all over the, 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 the lights and the number plate of the car and you say that to a child today and they have no idea what you're talking about because they've never experienced it I'm sure many of our listeners remember those days well gone, I'm gone. a bit older than you Niall and uh, I I, uh, I remember when I got my first motorbike uh, which would have been in 1975 I can remember the, the carnage of one's helmet visor after doing any journey uh, out of town for, that was longer than about 10 miles I mean you, you literally you were you were wiping green muck off your visor you know, when you when you got off the bike and it, it is an absolutely dramatic difference between then and now and I know this has been remarked on many times it's almost a cliche at this stage but it really is true that the number of bugs in the air is nothing compared to what it was 30 40 years ago yes absolutely right and the thing of course is those bugs are bird food that's what that's what basically produces the next generation of birds uh, so it's not surprising that these specialist insect eaters are declining um, you know and I think of course as well is that there's a phenomenon known as shifting baselines where we remember what it was like when we were children um, but that was already very depleted even at that stage so uh, children growing up today they'll remember having a few insects maybe a few bees and a few flies around and they'll be probably even fewer when they're adults and talking to their grandchildren but they still don't know what it was like none of us do what it was like maybe 400 years ago um, you know things have changed so much you only really have your only reference point is what you experienced yourself when you were younger uh, and of course what's happened to these insects uh, well several things uh, obviously one of the biggest culprits has been the intensification of agriculture and the use of pesticides and chemicals also we have um, we have monocultures of Italian ryegrass which doesn't really support much by way of, of insect life or other, other biodiversity and of course farming is a business I fully fully accept that but I do think that more needs to be done uh, to support the farmers who are encouraging biodiversity uh, this is a real uh, area that Burlachar gets very exercised about and we campaign heavily on because um, it needs to be recognised that the farmers who are doing the right things for biodiversity are doing the right things by you and me they're improving our quality of life they're improving our food security they're improving the cleanliness of our water and our air and our soil and it's really important uh, and yet it's not valued the way it should be we take it for granted these ecosystem services as we call them because it's hard to put a monetary value on them we, we, we just we take them for granted whereas in fact if you just take pollinating insects for example the value to our economy by insect population runs into the billions in terms of euro every year it's just we get it for free so we don't ever think about it we take it for granted well when the day comes that we can stop taking it for granted because the insects are gone how are we going to replace them what's it going to cost what's it going to do to food, food prices and food security we need to look at these things now and I think that it needs to be recognised that um, a lot of the, the money that's provided through the CAP for example the Common Agricultural Policy for Agri-Environment uh, Measures it really needs to be done to, to more needs to be done to direct to the people who are doing the most for our environment it shouldn't just be seen as an income supplement measure for all it should be seen as a way to to, to benefit the, the farmers and the landowners who after all are taking a financial hit because they're farming in a less intensive way or in a way that's more mindful of wildlife and biodiversity that, that's cost to them for doing that their productivity may be lower but i think as a society and as a species that's something that we should put a value on because it's important 
I think it's worth uh, keeping in mind that uh, not every environmental challenge is about climate change, although a lot of these things do relate back in one form or another to climate change. There are other issues than, than, than climate change which we need to be mindful of. And it's about, I suppose, um, as citizens and, of course, as governments, about keeping an eye on the medium and long-term effects of what we're doing, as well as the, the really big ticket issues that we're used to reading about and hearing about in the media all the time Uh, there are sometimes it's going to be hard work to keep track of all the things that we're doing to the world but uh, we have to try and um, and obviously organizations like Birdwatch Island are crucial to that Yes, I mean, birds are, are indicators of the health of our environment. They're the most visible form of wildlife that we have. Uh, we, we see them all the time. So by looking at their populations and whether they're going up or down or where they're moving to, it tells us a lot about what's happening to the creatures and, and the plants indeed that we can't see so easily. So what's happening to our insects? What's happening to our fungi, to our soil bacteria? That's all reflected in changes in the bird populations. Um, and I know it can seem it can seem relentless and, and very intimidating. In fact, we have this yeah, climate crisis. Absolutely. Climate change is a huge problem. We we have uh, habitat destruction, probably the biggest killer of birds in Ireland and of other wildlife too. Uh, we we have um, we, you know we have all sorts of other things as well. We have we have pollution. We have the, the declining biodiversity. All of these things. It seems it seems almost insurmountable. And I think that there's a there's a trap there we shouldn't fall into. We need to realise that we as individuals we can all make choices that will have a genuine impact on the world. And if enough of us were to do this, it would make a big difference. So I think that you know something like our wildlife and buildings publication showing people what they can do around their own homes. Um, one space that we can control ourselves you know if a lot of people did that it would make a big difference in in, in Ireland there's like for example there's one and a half million private gardens if you add up the acreage of that it's a massive habitat block one of our most important habitats and there's a lot we can do as individuals to, to, to improve that for wildlife well now that phrase a lot we can do is something which I hope we can turn to in a, in a, in a later episode of uh, Bird Table um, what can we do as individuals and I guess a, on a slightly large scale as communities but below the political level of, of government um, to encourage and protect birds so look we'll get on to that soon Niall and thanks for joining me again on Bird Table I'm already looking forward to our next conversation looking forward to it thank you very much and just a, a quick plug if I may for Birdwatch Ireland membership if anyone is interested in joining Birdwatch Ireland and helping us to do more of this vital work to preserve our biodiversity if you go to birdwatchireland.ie you'll see the details there click on become a member you get a lovely magazine quarterly uh, you get a welcome pack when you join and you get uh, you get the, the benefit of knowing that you're helping to conserve those birds and those insects for future generations and hit that website because it really is a treasure now thank you very much talk to you again soon thank you If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. 